Okay, this is going to be a very special episode this week of the Ortho Show. We're bringing on Jim Wittig, who's an orthopedic surgeon, oncology specialist out of Morristown, New Jersey. Uh, this is the first time we've had a doctor with this specialty on the show. Uh, you know, it's a it's a complicated issue when you talk about cancer, the ability to talk to your patients, as well as the parents of patients, about the idea of having to do surgery and chemotherapy, trying to save lives and do limb sparing surgery on these patients. It really is a unique individual, a unique team approach that really can manage this. We talk about the specific, the, the specifics of it. We talk about how you talk to patients. We talk about the treatments that are available and even how personally you can inspire uh, patients to do well, but then also to be able to manage any potential complications and issues. It's a very special episode, one I want everyone to listen to carefully. I think you will thoroughly enjoy Dr. Scott Sigmund, hashtag follow the fro. From medical media, this is The Author Show. Hello world, Dr. Scott Sigmund, your favorite opioid sparing orthopedic surgeon here for another episode of the Ortho Show podcast, where everyone knows we bring you the best of the best in orthopedics. We have a really remarkable show today. It's the first of, of his kind within our show, uh, and that is Dr. James Wittig, who's an orthopedic surgeon who specializes in orthopedic oncology. He's the chairman of the orthopedic department at Marstown Medical Center uh, in, in New Jersey. Jim, what a pleasure it is to have you on the show. We're really excited today. Hey, Scott. How you doing? Thanks a lot for inviting me. I'm really excited about coming on. Been waiting yeah. for this for a while. No, we appreciate it. We've been, you're one of my my favorite people to watch on social media. And we're going to talk about that as we get going, how you really have mastered your techniques of storytelling and being able to share the remarkable stories that you have of caring for your patients. But before we get there, we always start at the beginning, you know. Where were you born and bred? I mean, I looked at your CV. I know where you are. You're one of these Jersey, New York guys that couldn't get out of the metro area. <laughs> but tell us where you were born and where it all started. Uh, I was born in good old Patterson, New Jersey, at a hospital that was called the Barnett Hospital. It's no longer in existence. But uh, yeah, I was born in Patterson and lived there until I was 15. I went to a little Catholic grammar school in South Patterson called St. George. And ultimately, I ended up in Don Bosco Tech, which was a high school, a private high school in Patterson. It was an all guys school. And then I wanted to, uh, I didn't want to go to an all guys school. So I went to a another Catholic school in the town next to us, Clifton. And then we ultimately ended up moving to Clifton, New Jersey. So I ended up graduating from Clifton High School. So uh yeah, so uh, so you're a Jersey it, it, boy. Now I'm thinking of the Sopra I'm thinking of the Sopranos. Is the Patterson, New Jersey exit like on the Sopranos, or am I getting that wrong? <laughs> well, speaking <laughs> about that, that's pretty funny. My father was chief of police in Patterson, and he used to have to organize the security for the Sopranos um, when they came to town, and they shot frequently in Patterson. Yes, and okay. uh, it was awesome. funny. My dad was actually in an episode. Okay, it was pretty funny. 
Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. What an amazing show for sure. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. All right. So instead of, instead of uh, uh, joining the Italian mafia, you decide that you're going to be a doctor. So when, so when, when did that happen? When was the, uh, was there somebody in the family? I mean, when did the sort of medical school come in? Was it after college? When, when, when did you get the bug? You know, I got that. A lot of people ask me that question. And ever since I could remember, I wanted to be a doctor, maybe going back to the age of two, when I would carry around this little black toy doctor's bag that they used to sell at Toys R Us with a little stethoscope in it and a little thing to give shots and stuff. And I was just always fascinated by it. There's nobody in my family that's in the field of medicine. So maybe from the pediatrician. I remember I was very fond of my pediatrician growing up. So, uh, and I think that I just kept with it. Everybody asked me my entire life, what was I going to be? And my answer was always a doctor. Oh, I love it. And and you've been a great, you've become a great one. So obviously, so you're in New Jersey. There's not that many choices to go to school if you're going to stay in New Jersey. So you, so you go to Seton Hall <laughs> for your yep. undergrad, right? I mean, you want, you're, it sounds like you were going to stay home and, and be close, but yet still get a great education. So uh, it, was it in Seton Hall when you started really, you know, hitting the books hard for medical school? You really, you got the, the vibe that was, was going to be it? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I decided to really, you know, buckle down my my sophomore year that I really wanted to be a doctor. And I knew that I needed to get the grades to get in and do well on my MCAT. So I just uh, studied nonstop while I also uh, helped work myself through school a bit and with a lot of help from my parents and a lot of support from my parents also. So, uh, yeah, yeah. So I really buckled down and and uh, hit the books hard. Yeah, so that's awesome. So so you decided and, you know, NYU School of Medicine, you're taking a big leap. You're going to head over to New York from New Jersey. That must have been, uh, uh, <laughs> we joke around all the time because there's so many people that, that are in that area, that network of the New York, New Jersey area. And then you just stay. It's like a draw. It just draws you in and you can't leave, <laughs> right? Uh, but uh, so tell us about NYU School of Medicine and was orthopedics at that point early on again in the career at that moment? Or when were you really thinking with the Phoenix? Yeah, well, you know, I was very fortunate to get into NYU. It's just an amazing medical school. Uh, you know, NYU has, you, you, you take care of every type of patient from the poorest to the wealthiest, to all different cultures. And Bellevue Hospital is part of NYU's training, which was an amazing place to train and learn as a resident. And then it was between... My th I think I was going to go into actually cardiac surgery initially, and between my third and fourth year of medical school, one of my friends who was a year ahead of me said, you know, you should really try out orthopedics. I think you would like it. You know, they didn't have formal rotations earlier. You had to sort of pick it. So I did. I, went, I did the rotation, and I just absolutely loved it, and that was when I chose to go into orthopedics, and then I did my fourth year sort of away rotations in orthopedics. And so uh, Columbia residency, it is, which, you know, we it, it, it's really hard for me to pick ortho show alumni that haven't had some sort of uh, reach or, or touch to the Columbia residency. It just seems to be such a whether it's medical school or residency, just an amazing orthopedic breeding ground for so many. Uh, as everyone knows, Bill Levine, dear friend of mine, co-chief resident. Uh, he must have been was he back on staff yet? Was he junior staff or was he just? Still finishing up fellowships at that point. Uh, so when I was a PGY2, Bill was the fellow of the shoulder service at Columbia. Yeah, Bill was great. I remember Bill covering 
doing intern call for us for Christmas. Oh, and, get and, out and of Christmas town. Eve. I've never yeah. heard that story yeah. before. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's impressive. That's impressive. Yeah. Billy. He was really a great yeah. guy. Yeah. And then Bill, when I was a senior, let's see, a few years later, Bill came back as uh, one of the attendings yeah, as I was departing. All right. So, so let's talk about something here. So, you know, we've had a lot of people on the ortho show. There's a lot of specialties, you know, within orthopedic surgery, foot and ankle, hands, sports medicine, spine, total joints, but not a lot of people pick orthopedic oncology. And, you know, right from residency, you went down to do your fellowship at NIH at the Washington Hospital Center. When did you get the bug for orthopedic oncology in particular? Did Columbia have a strong program in that regard? You know, what what sort of drew your interest at that point? Yeah, when I was a uh, when I was a second year resident at Columbia, we had two two of the surgeons there that practiced orthopedic oncology. One was Dr. Ralph Marco, who actually started limb sparing surgery back in the 1970s. And he originated many of the treatments for osteosarcoma over at Memorial Sloan Kettering and spent his last five to seven years in practice with us at Columbia. And then Dr. Harold Dick, who was chairman of the department at Columbia, he also, he practiced a combination of, of orthopedic oncology, hand surgery, and pediatric orthopedics. So I got an amazing exposure very early on in my residency, and I just absolutely loved it. I loved the variety of the surgeries. I loved the impact that you had on the patients. I loved seeing the children grow up and do well and follow them through their lives. Uh, it was really amazing, uh, amazing things. You know, it's interesting. I can recall for the for the Tufts residents, we would go to Mass General, and they'd pick a resident once a year, and you'd go over for maybe, I don't know, three, six months. Uh, and I'll never forget sort of being in the Henry Mencken breakfast, you know, we would sit down in there with all of the Harvard residents with us as the Tufts resident as well. And you'd hunker down, you put your eyes down like this, you'd eat your eggs and you'd hope you'd never get called on, but then he would bring up a case every morning and it would be a different oncological case. And you had to be able to describe it, identify it, talk about treatments. And I just found it really so remarkable uh, but yet was such a small part of my training, but uh, just sort of comes to mind as I think about, you know, what you've been through for sure. Yeah, I remember I remember everybody talking about Dr. Mankin's uh, morning breakfast. <laughs> you had to be prepared. <laughs> Fortunately, he knew the toughs, He always did the Tufts residents, so he would never give us the crazy hard, you know, questions. Those Harvard guys, man, they knew the literature well, though. They could they could get up there and and go toe to toe with them. But you always kept your eyes down, open not to get called. So obviously, so you feel like there's a strong calling for you to do from oncology. It's there, and it just lights a spirit inside of you, and you decide that's what you want to do, and you go down to NIH. I can't imagine there were a lot of orthopedic oncological fellowships that you could choose from at the time. How many were there? I mean, what was the what were the yeah. options? Yeah, yeah. I think at the time maybe there was five fellowships in the country. Yeah, and uh, there was uh, you know the one that I attended in Washington D.C. Memorial Sloan Kettering, uh, Mass General, I think UCLA intermittently had a fellow, one at Mayo and one in Washington, DC, and one in um, Florida, University of Florida. And I think, yeah, those were the, the only fellowships at the time throughout the country. Well, you, you, you knew you were going to have job security, that's for sure, right? There weren't a lot yeah. of you <laughs> getting trained, <laughs> so you definitely knew you were going to be needed. 
but you know, so congratulations. You leave the New York, New Jersey area for a year. <laughs> so you get your training down at NIH, which I'm sure must have been absolutely fantastic. Any shout outs for your time when you were at NIH of people that you want to thank for the time and mentors? Oh, yeah, yeah. So Martin Malware was my fellowship director, who's actually, you know, we're like family, really. And I just admire him so much. My fellowship was through really Washington Hospital Center, Washington Cancer Institute. And we were the sarcoma consultants at NIH. So we took care of all the, the sarcomas that came in. And my fellowship was unique. It was a two-year fellowship, two-year clinical fellowship. And we, and, um, you know, uh, Dr. Malwer, he just, you know, he conveyed all his knowledge and all his skills to me. And the extra year really makes a big difference because a lot of the conditions are rare and you just, you know, a tumor can be arising in the relatively in the same body part, but just be a different size and it changes the operation. So he, you know, his fellowship was always designed to be a two-year clinical fellowship with us doing research sort of on the side. I just learned a tremendous amount from him and I owe, you know, much of my success in my practice to him and all the knowledge he conveyed to me. Do me a favor. Um, before we dive deep into all of that, we still have so much more of your travel just for our listeners that are maybe are not as you know medically trained. Just give us the definition of sarcoma because that's really where you live in that sort of orthopedic musculoskeletal space. Just so our listeners have an idea what a, a, a the definition of sarcoma would be. Yeah, so sarcoma is a type of cancer that arises directly from usually either the muscles or the bone. It could really arise from any connective tissue throughout the body, but when you speak in terms of orthopedic oncology, it's usually the muscles or the bones of the limb, as opposed to uh, you know cancers that arise from the lungs or the kidneys or your other organ-type cancers. And this is a type of cancer that arises directly from the bone. It doesn't spread from another area to the bone. And they're relatively rare. There's probably about 2,000 uh, bone sarcomas in the United States a year, and maybe about 7,000 soft tissue sarcomas. So they're rel relatively rare types of tumors. Yeah, I mean, I think for most people, when you think of bone cancer, it's metastatic cancer from prostate cancer or from breast cancer, for example. The cancer starts, or from lung cancer, starts someplace else and then travels through the bloodstream and then can wind up inside the bones. But that's not a primary bone cancer, which is what sarcoma is, which you primarily uh, deal with as well, which is a, is a very challenging uh, area of, of intervention. And, you, you know, you described it well, and I think you know, limb, you know, survivability and trying to maintain limb sparing surgery. So, which is wonderful. So you've got two years down in DC, but the island calls you back again and you're going to head back up and go on to staff at NYU. Am I correct? Is that where you first uh, started off as faculty? Yep. So I went back to where I did medical school and I started my practice at NYU and hospital for joint diseases in Bellevue hospital. Uh, NYU Lang Langone Orthopedic Institute was originally called um, Hospital for Joint Diseases. I forget exactly when it changed its name, but uh, full-fledged orthopedic hospital. And I just uh, loved every minute working there. I just uh, enjoyed it. I started, you know, NYU sort of had a precedence for tumor surgery. And I started the first orthopedic oncology clinic for the city patients or for the indigent patients at Bellevue Hospital. And mm -hmm. instantaneously, I must have had 
at least 100 patients that needed operations on my first year in practice there. And then other clinic patients that came through joint diseases and then, of course, the private practice side. So I really, uh, you know, hit the road running. Yeah, no, again, I mean, there's such a there's such a need, you know, there's just not that many of you and being able to start a practice early on and be busy right from the get go, because, man, you need the reps, you know, to be able to do what you do and become a master surgeon in limbs in limb salvage. You got to get the experience. Right. And uh, so wonderful that you had an opportunity to get busy very quickly. Uh, and then I guess an opportunity came up at Mount Sinai where you they, they asked you to come on board to be the chief of orthopedic oncology there for a number of years as well. Yes, sir. Uh, yeah. In around 2007 or so, the um, the chairman of the department at Mount Sinai was an orthopedic oncologist, Dr. Dempsey Springfield. Yeah, he left in like two thousand five yeah. or two thousand six. Yeah. yeah, he retired, and Evan Flato, who was one of my attendings at Columbia, uh, asked me to consider coming up and being being the chief of orthopedic oncology at Mount Sinai, and uh, so I did. I did. I moved my practice up there, and uh, another another fantastic experience. Yeah, and then off to uh, down to Hackensack for a number of years, and now finally uh, to Morristown, where. I'm sure you're maybe one of two uh, orthopedic oncology uh, doctors that specialize in New Jersey for these types of tumors. There can't be many of you. Exactly. There's not too many of us in, in the New Jersey area, for sure. All right. So let's yeah. dive in a little bit here, you know, on on what you're doing and the emotional aspect of it, the physical aspect. I mean, this is not easy. When you think of, you know, orthopedics, you know, in medicine, like I don't walk into the office, you know, knees and shoulders left and right and have to talk to somebody about cancer very often. Right. It's a it's a very important, pivotal moment in their lives and being able to have that conversation. So, you know, just just how do you how do you walk into a room? Right. And and talk to a patient for the first time. I mean, I'm sure by the time they get to you, they probably know that they have cancer. But yet the parents of a child, for example, when you have to walk in the room and tell them that their child has a sarcoma and that they're going to need, you know, really dramatic treatment, surgical, medical, chemotherapeutic, the entire team process. What walk us through that experience, how you build that relationship with your patients. Yeah, sure. So that's, you know, it's one of the most difficult things that I have to do. And, uh, you know, I have to, usually I can tell whether it's a sarcoma uh, based on an x-ray or an MRI. And, you know, you should walk into the room. I'd be very reassuring. Um, I have a, you know, I, I focus on the patient. And the first thing that I tell them is, I look at, I, I went over all your studies and, um, you know, no matter what we talk about today, you're going to be okay. You know, you can, you can be cured of this. You're not going to lose your leg or anything. But let's let's just talk about it. And I'll tell them that, you know, I have a high suspicion that it's a cancerous tumor and we're going to need to biopsy it. And we're going to take, you know, fantastic care of you and you're not going to lose your leg and you're not going to die of this. We're going to we're going to work on curing you. And um, I think that, you know, when you're talking to a patient and a child or their parents about this. Right. They, they're in instant shock 
and there's only a couple things that they could really remember. And those are two of the most important things that I have them focus on to remember. Um, and then I'm really supported by an amazing team in my office, and we provide them with a lot of uh, emotional support through, throughout the entire journey and spend a lot of time in the room talking to the parents and talking to the child and make sure, making sure that they know that they're going to get the best care possible and that we're going to, we're just going to, uh, you know, take absolutely the best care of them and they're going to get the best treatments and they're going to survive. And I think that's important to convey. Yes. Yeah, so a positive energy team approach, you know, building a relationship, right? You know, you need to, you're going to be with this, with this patient, hopefully, for decades, right? If it all works out right, great, right. you guys are gonna see each other once a year, every two years, whatever it is that it is, and you build these relationships. We watch you on social media, which I wanna talk about separately, about how you share these stories uh, and really give us that sort of really positive energy. You know, I think of, you know, what I do, I'm a sports medicine specialist, right? You know, I'm sure you're in the room with these patients the first time in for, there's no time limit. You just spend as much time as you need to be able to, to get, uh, the, the the messaging across to be able to help. But, uh, you know, when I think of what I do, you know, it, it's it's going to go well. The likelihood of any kind of a major complication or infection or uh, or bad result, we're talking like 0.1%, you know, really small numbers. But yet what you do is really, you know, it's invasive and it, it, it has a lot of potential complications associated with that. So again, you must have to, Describe and discuss that while still remaining positive uh, as you work through the treatment plan for these patients. Sure, sure. Well, the patients, you know, come back and see me a few times. And, you know, we talk about different things as we're going along because a lot of them require preoperative chemotherapy. So we have some time frames involved with being able to discuss about the exact surgical procedures and go over things multiple times and tell them about, you know, any of the possible complications. And, you know, the biggest complication that I think we talk about is wound complications, especially children who are on chemotherapy. They're at risks of infection and risks of that the wound won't heal. Uh, luckily, it's still very low, uh, but um, still we have, to, we have to discuss it so that there's no surprises afterward. But by that point in time, usually they're very comfortable with me. We have a very good relationship going on. And, um, you know, we don't have any option but to do the surgery. So... We've got to get it out of there. Yeah. So talk about the team, right? Because, you know, you need a team there, whether, you know, it, this, the surgery is the tip of the spear, but yet usually there's chemotherapy that's involved, you know, for these patients. So there, there, there has to be a collaboration amongst physicians as well as nurses and overall staff. So talk us through that process of the team approach as to how you manage these patients. Yeah. So many times we have, you know, full-fledged multidisciplinary team at Morristown Medical Center with adult medical oncology that's right down the hallway from me, uh, radiation oncology that's downstairs from me, as well as pediatric oncology. And particularly for the pediatric patients, a lot of times what we'll do is I'll see the patient and the pediatric oncologist will come over to my office and talk to the patients after me and, uh, and meet them also day one. Um, it's very, I have a very large office staff. All of them are extremely supportive. I have several advanced practitioners, physician assistants, nurse practitioners 
the work on educating and following up on the patients and guiding their guiding them through the process and are always there to answer their questions, helping to coordinate the care between the different doctors that will be involved in determining determining their treatments. So there's a lot of communication that goes on in front of the patient, but also a lot behind the scenes from us. And it makes it very simple to do in a cancer center where we have people that we just walk down the hallway and talk to. So is there like a, a tumor board as well? Because I could imagine that every, no two tumors are alike. I mean, whether it's the comorbidities of the patient, the location of the tumor, the type of tumor. So there's got to be a lot of discussion about the process and selecting the best possible treatment for any one individual patient. Yeah, exactly. I will discuss it with, uh, we'll discuss it with everybody, you know, and, and collaborate on it. Um, in either a meeting or or virtually or by discussion on phone. And, um, you know, it, you're right. There's a lot of pieces of the puzzle that go together and not every, not every diagnosis or every specific type of sarcoma is treated in the exact same way. A lot of it depends on location, size, uh, how easy it is to remove it without having preoperative treatments, uh, patient's condition, if they have a lot of comorbidities or they don't, for instance, if they're a little bit elderly and sick and have other problems with their heart and lungs, they might not be a candidate for chemotherapy. So uh, a lot of a lot of things that go into discussion, whereas if we have a very young patient with maybe, you know, a colon cancer and a single metastasis to bone, you better believe that we're going to treat that person aggressively and get rid of both cancers. Um so, uh, whereas if the person's 75, 80 years old, that might not be the case. Yeah. Fascinating. So are there, are there new things, you know, I mean, it's been a while for me, uh, but are there some cool new techniques and, and, uh, that are available to help to, to be better sharpening your, your, your tools, if you will, while you're doing this, what, what's the latest? Uh, there's always some subtle adjustments in the different prosthes prosthes internal prostheses that we use. Um, and, uh, one of the big advances over the last several years, that's become more popular to use or is this use of an extendable or growing prosthesis in a patient. So, um, the old prostheses that allowed for expanding the limb required surgical procedures to expand it. The new one that's out is a magnetic, uh, prosthesis where the patient can actually put their leg under a magnet. The magnet spins around the leg and turns a mechanism within the leg, within the prosthesis, uh, which allow, it's a corkscrew type mechanism. So as it's spinning very rapidly, the corkscrew unscrews and lengthens the prosthesis. So they could be in this um, under this magnet for 16 minutes and then they get lengthened four millimeters. So we could do a little bit at a time, so it's not very painful. And uh, it was really a remarkable advance. When there was the surgery, when there was the prostheses that were around that required surgery, you know, um, every child's at a risk of an infection when you open them up. So I remember one child, I must have expanded her 10 times, finally got her to her final length and she over two or three years and she got infected and I had to go back in and take out the whole prosthesis. And that's a big deal where the function then is as and they can use their leg. So that's been a major advancement, I think, in the field. Um, use of the robots and use of navigation systems have been helpful also with certain types of tumors and planning your surgeries, and sometimes making some prefabricated 
custom prostheses with prefabricated cutting guides for different types of tumors in different locations. So uh, all interesting things. You know, it's interesting if, if I have, you know, a complication and I take care of a patient, you know, I always, you know, sort of mourn through the process of the grieving of whatever it is that's happened. Obviously, you know, no one ever wants to have a complication in their practice, but you, you have to figure out a way to, to sort of mourn and then compartmentalize so you can move on to be able to treat the next patient, right? You can't let those. And I, I would imagine in the world of oncology, you know, there are, you know, complications, there are deaths, there, there are surgeries that just don't work uh, and you have to, you know, talk to patients or parents and it has to be, you know, very personally stressful to be able to be able to do that, maintain and come back to work and, and still take care of the next patient in line. Yeah, you're right. Um, you know, there's all types of complications that can come up, right? There's, you know, um, we had one of our children last year who was undergoing preoperative chemotherapy and died of a chemotherapy-related complication. You know, so chemotherapy is very toxic. It's been the only patient in years, but still that's fairly devastating. Um, and then, yeah, we do have, you know, we do have adults and children who pass away. Luckily, you know, the majority of them survive, and that's what you have to focus on, and you do whatever you can, um, you know, during you know, after the surgery or when patients are sort of going downhill, anything to make them comfortable and, and focusing on them any way that you can help them. The majority of patients are always very happy when they come to the office. They're happy to see me. A lot, of, a lot of people ask, I don't know how you do that, how you deal with that every day. And the truth is, is that the patients are very happy to see you. You're doing good for them. You're trying to help them any way possible. And they, they don't necessarily come into the office very depressed. Um, so that's, that's nice. That enables you to move on. But like I said, I've said, told to some people, you could do the same exact operation on two different people. And for whatever reason, this patient's knee is functioning perfectly. And this patient's knee is a little stiff and why that happens. It's just patient specific factors that we really don't know much about nowadays, whether there's psychological factors or different things with their body or recuperation, a lot of different reasons. So you have to be able to get beyond that. And if you think that you could have done something better, always analyzing how you could have done that and improving the next time. Yeah, that's uh, that's really wonderful advice and counsel. And I love the fact and the concept that here you are, an oncological surgeon, and patients are coming in and they're happy to see you because they're alive, you know, and they're hopeful, right? right? And, and so right. really, really a wonderful description. All right, let's talk about something that I think that I'm uh, a big fan of, which is social media. Everybody knows the fro is everywhere, but I love, you know, there's certain people I really enjoy watching on, on social media and LinkedIn, and you are absolutely one of them. You know, I'll, I'll tell you a funny story. You know, Redler and I, you know, Mike Redler is an orthopedic surgeon out of Connecticut, also part of the whole, you know, the Columbia crew and all of that. But we were down in Honduras doing some training and you had just popped up your damn post on the synovial sarcoma inside the joint. And he, I'm like, you scared the shit out of us. I'm like, okay, there's a synovial <laughs> sarcoma in the joint. That thing looks like a cyst. The cyst is a cyst. And he and I looked at each other. We're like, oh my God, we gotta, be, we gotta look at these things more carefully, you know? <laughs> but uh, no, that was a great story. So just tell us where the social media 
came to you that you want to share these great, great stories about the successes of your patients and your bond that you have with them. You know, I love it. Tell us about that. Where did it come from? So it comes from a few different places. One is, you know, I want to bring awareness to sarcoma and musculoskeletal tumors because majority of people out there really don't know much about them. And often patients go misdiagnosed or not diagnosed for periods of time because in many instances, um, they're dismissed as sports injuries. So a person might be having, like you said, knee pain and there's this, looks like a cyst in the knee, but it turns out to be a sarcoma. Um, or, uh, you know, a, a kid's having pain in his knee and it's being dismissed as night pain or as growing pains. And he's then all of a sudden walking off the baseball field and fractures his femur just walking off the baseball field. Or a person has a lump in their muscle and they think they call it a, a knot. I tore, I tore my muscle. Or so, so many, many of these conditions are not recognized. Uh, by the general public, but even by many physicians don't know much about them. I don't think we're taught much about them in medical school. Uh, we're not taught that much about them in residency unless you have a specific rotation on an orthopedic oncology service. So I think that awareness is important. And then from a personal perspective, I'd like to show the great care that we're giving patients, but also I'd like to show how appreciative I am of the patients coming to me. Uh, you know, um, I have so much abundance in my life, so much joy, so much happiness, and um, you know, so much that I I enjoy doing every day. And taking care of patients is really a hobby for me. And I'm very, very appreciative of the patients that come to see me. I tell everybody that to be able to take care of a child who has a cancer and particularly do these major limb sparing surgeries. It's the biggest compliment in the world coming from the parents. And you can't take that for granted that they trust me and their, me and my team to take care of them. Um, and I'd like to demonstrate that appreciation, throw that positive energy out of there, out there and show some nice positive human stories, except, you know, um, instead of all the other stuff we see in the media, all the negative stuff. Yeah, no, all I can tell you is just keep on doing it, brother, because, you know, I think that, you know, just there's so much thoughts about cancer and the process and and complications. And you just you shed a light, a very positive light and energy on this that I think that, that people really appreciate, you know, greatly. I mean, you're you're literally a real life superhero with your your time, your team as well. You know, and like I got to tell you right now, do me a favor. Can you drop and give me 20 right now? Because I, cause I, know you, just, I want to see those bulging biceps. There you go. Perfect. There it is. That's the look we see all the time. Now, listen, Jim, you are literally, you know, you're the tip of the spear in our fight against, you know, sarcomas and bone cancer and limb sparing surgery. And I knew that you'd be a great interview. Uh, I love your positive energy. I love the fact that you flip the switch for me when you say that your patients are, are happy to see you, the way you share their stories, uh, the way that you're truly making a difference with these parents and the patients. You know, really, we can't thank you enough for the time and energy that you put into your career to be a master oncologic orthopedic surgeon. Well, thank you. Thank you, Scott. And I really appreciate your show. You do an amazing job with it and uh, bring a lot of stuff to the, to the light, to the eyes of other people. And uh, I really appreciate you inviting me today for this interview.
You are our first ortho show alumni, orthopedic oncologi oncological surgeon, and we can't thank you enough, Jim. This is Dr. Scott Sigmund, hashtag follow the fro, host of the ortho show. Till next time. <laughs> thank you.